Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Beloved, our reading today comes to us from the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel of Luke has been called the most beautiful book in the world. One way to appreciate the impact of this gospel on faith and culture is to try to envision what Christianity would be like without it. Can we imagine Christmas without shepherds or a baby in a manger? How many favorite stories would we lose? Zacchaeus, Mary and Martha, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, all are found only in Luke. Today our reading is part of a larger section in Luke that deals with eternal life. This morning we find Jesus telling parables and despite objections from his disciples, receiving and blessing little children. At that moment, Jesus gets a pointed question from someone in the crowd. Let us turn now and listen to what happens next. A reading from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30 of the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor father and mother. He replied, I've kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, there is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who could be saved? He replied, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Then Peter said, look, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. Teach us your ways. Teach us your ways. Learn to love each other. Teach. 
teach us your ways. Teach us to Sports shows on TV, uh, you've seen some of those extreme sports shows that it, people are doing these kind of things that uh, you have to agree not to do legally when you take out life insurance policy, um, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, bungee jumping, uh, hella skiing, um, paragliding, swimming with sharks, uh, pastoring. <laughs> uh, pastoring is on the list, but it wasn't featured in this particular episode. But I learned that um, one of the fastest growing extreme sports in the world these days is also the most dangerous and illegal. Uh, it's called uh, base jumping, B-A-S-E. It's an acronym for buildings, antennas, spans, and earth. And these are the four so-called launching pads from which people will jump uh, with a backpack. Uh, on their, uh, a parachute on their back. Um, for base jumpers, there's, there's no tall um, fixed object that's off limits. Uh, downtown skyscrapers, uh, catenaries, bridges, antennas, cliffs, towers, uh, it's all fair game. And most base jumps are taken from a height of around 400 feet, which means that you have about two seconds or so before uh, you have to pull the cord on your parachute. And failing to do that uh, means that you're no longer base jumping, but um, thud jumping, right? The most uh, coveted of all launching pads for base jumpers is the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro. That massive effigy of Jesus with arms outstretched gracefully over the crowded city and the statue stands um, about 100 feet tall, but it's stationed on a little mountain that's about 200 feet tall, which makes it a perfect uh, jumping off point. I mean, one day somebody walked by and said, yeah, we should try it. It looks like fun. <laughs> Leaping from the arms of Jesus is illegal in Rio. And so jumpers have to climb in the middle of the night or early morning hours under the cover of darkness where upon arrival they will crawl out on that outstretched arm of the Christ figure. When they do that, they finally will jump and pull their cord and they will be back down on the earth in no amount of time. It's a, it's a compelling evocative image. Uh, leaping from the arms of Jesus. I know a lot of people these days who have leapt from the arms of Jesus, not with parachutes on their backs, but with these backpacks that are stuffed with questions and doubts and suspicions 
that for too long went unanswered or silenced or dismissed or even condemned by the church. And so these, these people felt like they had only one other choice, which was to leave, to jump. They one day just decided to jump, and it was a leap of faith from faith, away from faith, at least the kind of faith that they were asked to believe in to begin with, uh, uh, this idea of believing in a God that, that doesn't quite stack up or reconcile with your lived experience. And so they've chosen, as we've seen throughout this sermon series, they've chosen to live a life after God. This series has been for them, it's been for you, it's been for all of us, anyone who wonders sometimes if the ancient faith of Jesus has ossified into some old statue that no longer gives life or has relevancy. And what I'm trying to say over these last several weeks is you don't have to jump. Faith doesn't have to be this either-or proposition. It can be, and it is, a both-and. And maybe together in spaces like this, we can bring those backpacks and, and unpack them together on the outstretched arms of Jesus and know that it's okay, it's safe. I want to do it again today. Let's do it now with this ancient question that many of us bring with us you know, throughout our lives and even to church, uh, this question, what happens when we die? Now, that's a picker-upper question, isn't it? <laughs> but still, aren't you a little curious? And aren't you just a little confused by what so many have told you over the years? When I was pastoring a church in San Diego before coming to Colorado, there was a news reporter of a local newspaper, the San Diego Reader, who would come to a different church every Sunday morning, sit through the service, and then after the service, he would pull the preacher aside to ask the one question that would consist of his column. One question only. What happens when we die? And then he'd feature the pastor's response in the following week's column. And I don't know why it was such a popular column, but people seem to talk about it a lot. It, it, wasn't, it shouldn't have been popular because every pastor's answer seemed to be a lot like the previous pastor's answer. Uh, nothing really new, and by the way, nothing really very biblically grounded. It was often full of sin and salvation, heaven and hell, these kinds of things. Um, the preachy stuff, in other words. The kind of creepy stuff. The kind of stuff that makes you want to jump from the arms of Jesus rather than into them. Some people are so, have you noticed this? They're so certain and descriptive about what happens when we die, despite the fact they've never actually taken the journey. A lot of people are so certain and confident about where they're going to go when they die, despite the fact what a lot of people really think about them, you know. That reporter never showed up in my church. I wish the, I look for him every week. But if he had, I would have pointed him to this wonderful story you heard Reverend Jerry read. A story about this wealthy, influential man who comes to Jesus one day and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And isn't that the real question? Not just what happens when we all die, but what's going to happen to me after I die? As in, is there life after death? 
as in what must I do to get eternal life? And modern Christians usually come back with a lot of answers that are around this kind of central theme of uh, confess your sins, uh, pray the sinner's prayer, give your life to Jesus, trust in God, believe in God's name. And these are just a few of the many responses maybe you have, have been told as well. And these can be life-changing, life-giving responses if we work on them and you act on them. I'm a big fan of confessing our sins. I believe in it. It's very healthy for us. I'm a big fan of committing our lives to Christ and walking in the steps of Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm committed wholeheartedly to trusting in God. And so I ask the question, if that is also true of you, does that mean that we are all in? Does that mean that we will inherit eternal life? That's what we've been told, but I want you to hear what this man in the story is told. When the man comes to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? These aren't the answers that Jesus gives him. Did you hear what he answers with? It's rather astonishing because it's so simple. He says, be faithful in marriage, do not murder, do not steal, do not tell lies about others, and respect your mother and your father. Well, you remember the Ten Commandments. These are, of course, five of the ten. So I ask you, are you as confused as I am about the response that Jesus gives that this is how we inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't say, uh, I want you to say this sinner's prayer, get on your knees, give your life to me, uh, join Team Jesus. If that's how it works, I think Jesus really missed a great opportunity here to, to close the deal on a new convert. But instead, Jesus turns to, of all things, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. And if that's not odd enough, Jesus actually only names five of the Ten Commandments in his response to the man. Now, if you're still not completely puzzled by this, it turns out that the five commandments that he names as the prescription for inheriting eternal life, they're not remotely religious or spiritual at all. They're profoundly human. Look, of the Ten Commandments, we know the first four. If you can recall them, we would call them a, a spiritual, a religious. Do not worship any God except me. Do not make idols. Do not misrepresent my name. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. These four commandments are what we understand as religious, and they, they structure our relationship with God. You might call it a vertical relationship. But Jesus doesn't include these in his response the man who wants to know how to get eternal life. In other words, the answer is not religious at all. The remaining six commandments are all about our human relationships. And in his answer, Jesus mentions five of them. There's one that he left out. It's the covenant, or the, uh, the, the coveting commandments, the number 10. Thou shalt not covet. I don't know why he left this out. Maybe Jesus was, was jonesing on the man's sandals. I don't know. <laughs> what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's his question. That's our question. And in response, Jesus lists five commandments. Be faithful in marriage. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not tell lies about others. Respect your mother and father. These are all about human relationships, the horizontal 
relationship we have with people. Let me ask you again, does this story make any sense at all? Because what starts out as a question about eternal life turns into a conversation about five commandments that all have to do with how we live this life in this world. The entire story hinges on this phrase, this one phrase, eternal life. What is it? I want you to know it's not what we've been told, at least not exactly. We often equate eternal life with getting into heaven when we die. But this isn't at all what Jesus believed or what he taught. It's not what the ancient Hebrews believed. Jesus never actually teaches in the Gospels once about how to get into heaven. What he teaches is how to inherit eternal life. If you're a little confused, let me help, help you distinguish between uh, time on the one hand and space on the other. Jesus didn't understand eternal life as a place, spatially primarily, like we moderns do. Jesus talked about eternal life in temporal or time-oriented terms. And like all Jews, Jesus understood, he understood time in terms of ages. You've heard of the word eons. It's a Greek word. Eons, it means age. Eternity or eternal, it, you find the word eon in it. It's the root word of eternal. What Jesus understood was that, that all of time is, cons- is composed of two ages. Uh, this age that we're living in right now, and what he and many others, and what you heard in this passage today, described as the age to come. That is to say, there's another age after the age that we're in right now. Jesus perceived all the world, not primarily in terms of spatial, but in terms of present and future. And this is how all the Old Testament prophets, all the ancient rabbis saw the world. This age and the age to come. And they all believe that the universe and this age that we're living in right now is moving toward another age. Uh, and that age has like a purpose and an aim to it that, that would be fulfilled in the age to come. But it would happen in this world. And all the prophets, they described it in very specific terms. Like that age to come would be the fulfillment of a time of justice and of peace. It would be a time when there would be no more war, no more weeping, no more sickness or hunger or crime, racism, no more refugees, no more Facebook, no more uh, cable news, no more angry tweets and angry emails, no more COVID. When they called this age to come, they called it shalom. And we've seen the series so far. Shalom is, is when all these disparate, broken, shattered, fragmented experiences of our lives, even opposed, fragmented experiences of our lives, even opposing forces in the world would be drawn together into the unity of the oneness of God. This is the age to come. Uh, and all the prophets describe it. Uh, 
Listen to this. Joel says it's the time when God's spirit would be on all flesh. Our sons and our daughters, he said, would prophesy. Our old would dream dreams. Our, our young would, would see visions. Oh. Isaiah describes it as a time when, when the weary and the lame and the exhausted would, as he says, mount up with wings like eagles and run and not fall, not faint, but walk. Ezekiel described it as a time of abundance when all people would be given new wine and new crops, new grain and new hearts. In other words, they all described the new age, the age to come, as a time that would, that would bring renewal and redemption and shalom. It wouldn't happen in some other world, but it would happen here, in this one. Why does this matter? Because so many of us have been raised with this idea that God is so disappointed with the world that God has to create an evacuation plan, another world, a heavenly world in which we all get to be rescued. Well, some of us, not all of us, is what we're told. But some of us who, who, who are worthy get to go there. I, I want you to be introduced to this God of the Bible who, who loves this world too much to abandon it. A God who plans to redeem the world rather than devise some evacuation plan to bail us out. And this God comes to us. He comes into our world and woos us, as we've seen, calls us to live out the prayer that we just prayed a few moments ago. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. On earth. They called it the age to come. I think what they meant was something more like the world we all long for and are willing to work for. Jesus, all the Jews of his day, even the rich man, they all believed in the age to come and they called it eternal life. Jesus tells the man how to inherit it. How uh, we, uh, we can all inherit it, actually. Uh, and he doesn't, he doesn't give us a, an exhaustive list, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but he starts with the basics, and I want you to hear what he says. Be faithful in marriage, do not murder, do not steal, do not tell lies about others, respect your father and mother. Live this way, says Jesus, and the age to come will come. Um, this is not upper division work. I mean, anybody can do this. It's not hard. These simple commands that Jesus points us to are, they serve as the basic foundation of human community. And we can never experience the age to come, that shalom and the age to come, if we don't master these simple things. Gandhi was, was asked once, you know, what he thought about Western civilization. And he said, I think it would be a good idea. All the prophets, Jesus, the ancient rabbis, they taught that we are partners in creating the age to come. As we saw a few weeks ago, the abolitionist Theodore Parker says the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But it was Jesus who told us we are partners with God in the bending of it. And it all starts by living the commandments of God. This is how we bring the age to come 
into the here and now. I read a story, a powerful story from uh, former U.S. Senator Mark Hatfield. He was in the uh, Navy uh, during World War II. And Hatfield, he was assigned to a ship that accompanied the USS uh, Missouri into Tokyo Bay uh, following the formal surrender. And then he went in on these little smaller uh, uh, crafts through canals. uh, And uh, he was there to inspect Hiroshima after the bomb. And he wrote this powerful testimony about it had been about a month after the bomb had decimated everything. He said there was a smell to the city, total silence, utter devastation in every direction. And as the Americans sailed these canals, all these Japanese parents and children lined up. And when the children discovered that the troops weren't going to shoot them, they gathered around these troops and they were starving. And Hatfield said they all, all the Americans, just, they took out all their lunches and, and they shared them with the children. And he said, in that moment, uh, I had an epiphany. He said, you learn to hate with a passion in wartime. If you don't kill your enemy, they'll kill you. But sharing those sandwiches with the people who had been my enemy was therapy for me. And I could almost feel the hate leaving me. It's a powerful reminder of how we bring the age to come into this age. Very simple. Like share your sandwiches. And when we do these very simple basic things, we, 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 we go from war to peace, from enemies to friends, from fear to trust, from hunger to abundance, from this age to the age to come. Shalom, eternal life. We experience it whenever we drag the future into the present. All right, but still, I know what you're asking. What happens when we die? Is there a heaven too? Did a survey with all of you this week. It just of all the questions, I think the most revealing is, is the first question we asked. We asked, uh, I believe in life after death, and, and 90% of you agreed or strongly agreed. There is a sense, there is a sense in, in, among us and a hopefulness in us that this is true. And it comes from a good biblical foundation. The Hebrews, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the early church, they all spoke of a realm or a dimension of God's creation that transcends the world. It's a dimension where all that shalom is actually happening right now. It's a realm where the age to come is already being experienced. That's why we pray that prayer on earth as it is, not as it shall be, but as it is in heaven. The shalom of God is already happening It's a reality. Somewhere in some dimension of space that we can't see or touch, somewhere in some dimension of time that we can't measure, Scripture tells us it's happening. But here's the problem. Not even Jesus told us exactly what it looks like or how it works or where it is or or what form it really takes. Jesus spoke of heaven and the afterlife 
almost exclusively in parables and allegories, and almost always in ways that pointed us back to how we should live our lives today in this realm, as if our future lives in the next depend on it. That makes a lot of sense. According to our human logic in the modern world, there are good people, there are bad people, there are good places, and there are bad places. And by the way, God, we got a pretty good idea about where we can put some people and not others. We call that the big sort. And there's a big problem with the big sort. In a lot of those parables that Jesus tells, God doesn't sort according to our logic or our scales of justice. Maybe you remember that parable Matthew, in 25, Matthew 25. It's called the parable of the last judgment. I think it's, it's poorly titled. Uh, sheep and goats, though, you remember that. Uh, the big sword. And in that parable, some people, they thought they had been doing all the right things all this time. But as it turned out, they, in their lives, never got around to doing uh, those basic things that Jesus lists. It turns out these are the ultimate things. Feeding the hungry, visiting the prisoner, caring for the sick. There's a whole other group of people who were doing all these things all the time. Not because they were motivated or driven by fear. Not because they were driven by a a possible reward in heaven. But because they looked at the world and said, that age to come, we have to bring it here. We are partners with God in bringing the age to come here. And so they showed up to the needs of the world. They did it in ways that were unremarkable because they thought no one was watching. No one. And so they did them anyway. They were driven not by fear of hell, not by rewards of heaven. They were driven by love. And it turns out in the parable, nobody had any idea that these basic things were somehow on the final exam. It's just a story, we say. It it didn't really happen. It's just a story. But then one day, a man on a cross looks over at Jesus and says, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's a, a criminal. He's probably an insurrectionist. He might even have been a a Palestinian proud boy. Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And that's just not a parable. That happened. So what happens when we die? I wish I could give you something better than only God knows. But God knows. And so we can hope. We can hope along with God's hope. I hope someday I see my father. I hope I see my grandparents. I hope I see all the wonderful people I've buried and loved. I hope Gandhi's there. I hope dogs are there. There's a special place for cats, but I hope dogs, (laughs) I hope dogs are there. (laughs) 
Here's my question, friends. Why wouldn't we trust our lives to the God whom we've trusted all this time? Why wouldn't we trust our lives when this life is, is over? All we know is this, God's steadfast love, it woos us, it calls us every day, every moment to be in relationship, to, to possibilities of shalom right now in our lives. And it never stops wooing us in the next. It never stops. Death doesn't stop the, the lure of God. We can turn away from it. We can reject it. We might describe that as an experience of going through hell. God never stops even there. God never gives up on you. God always hopes with our hope. Always. Even in death. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Three things. Drag the future into the present by living the commandments. In all things, be driven by love, not fear. And pursue the woo of God. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.